Society, the podcast that takes comedy pilots from A-list writers that were sold and developed at networks, but never produced, and gives them the table reads they never got a chance to have. I'm Andrew Reich, the creator and co-host, along with Ben Blacker of Dead Pilot Society. Dead Pilot Society is brought to you in part by Today Ticks. You know something I don't do enough? Go to the theater. Whenever I go, I think I should do this more. It's fun. You feel cultured. You know, it's good for your writing to hear great playwriting. You get to see incredible actors right there on stage in front of you, almost like you're at a Dead Pilot Society reading. So why don't I do it more? Maybe because buying tickets is a pain. But now there's Today Ticks. Today Ticks is an online platform, an app where you can find tickets for theater, opera, comedy, dance, And you can get them at exclusive prices, even months in advance. Forbes magazine calls it the uh, Uber of Broadway tickets. But it's not just Broadway. They're in 16 cities across three continents. Here in Los Angeles right now, you can get great deals on tickets to Blue Man Group or Book of Mormon. I saw they even have tickets for the outdoor movies on the roof of the Montalban Theater. Take a look. Check out what's available in your city. There's bound to be something that you want to see. So go to todaytix, that's todaytix.com slash deadpilots and use the promo code deadpilots and you'll get $10 off your first purchase. All right, so I've been reading uh, this new book about friends called Generation Friends. Uh, I will admit that I got it uh, so I could check the index and see how many times I mentioned in the book and then check uh, the other writers' names to see which writers got mentioned more than me. I'm not proud of that, but uh, there you have it. Um, And this isn't really like a plug for the book because I'm not far enough into it to tell if I can really recommend it yet but i did just read the section on the pilot the making of the pilot and it is insane how many incredibly improbable things came together to make the show happen in the way it did any of these things happened it wouldn't have been the show that that it was and who knows it could have ended up here on dead pilot society i mean you you start with the fact that david crane and marta kaufman came up with this idea for a show about a bunch of young people hanging out in a coffee house at the same time that Warren Littlefield, then the president of entertainment at NBC, was discovering that advertisers increasingly only cared about the 18 to 49 demographic. And he was looking for a show about a bunch of young people at exactly the time that David and Marta had one to pitch. It's rare that things align in that way. Then so many incredible things happened in casting. I mean, both... Jennifer Aniston and Matthew Perry were already cast in other shows. So the network had to agree to cast them in what's called in second position. And networks really don't like doing that. And, you know, when you do it, it often doesn't work out. I mean, the first pilot that Ted Cohen uh, and I made, uh, we had we shot it. We had Zachary Levi in what we were assured was a safe second position to a show called Less Than Perfect. 
That show got picked up for one more season, uh, took Zach away from us, killed our pilot. Now, that could have easily happened with Jen, but Warren Littlefield not only made the gamble, he actively made efforts to program strong stuff, these Danielle Steele movies, uh, against muddling through the show that Jen was on. So he made sure that, to kill that show and, and that it wouldn't go more than six episodes. I mean, how many network heads would care enough about a pilot to do that? Then, luckily, Matthew Perry's uh, pilot didn't end up going. Luckily, Craig Bierko turned down the Chandler role. Luckily, Jamie Gertz turned down the role of Rachel. You know, and then after a run-through, Don Olmeyer, who was the West Coast president of NBC, who was above Warren Littlefield, thought the show had too many plot lines. He wanted to make it all about Monica, make the rest of them just supporting players. And then luckily, they had Jimmy Burroughs directing, and he had the clout to say, that's not the show I wanted to do, and he shut down the note. So I, I don't know exactly what my point is, other than that, what a huge combination of luck and network support and showrunning skill you need to get anything good through the system. I mean, one thing that struck me was how David and Marta handled this note from NBC uh, at the script stage that they wanted to add an older main character. They started to get cold feet about having it just be all these young people. So David and Marta, they took the note, they added this character, they named him Pat the Cop, they, they even cast him, but they hated the version with him in it. So they made an offer to NBC and they said they would make sure that the parents of the six friends would be a big part of the show. And so that that older generation would be represented if they could get rid of Pat, the cop, it was a smart compromise. It was smart for NBC to agree. It was great show running and it was great collaboration on the part of the network. Um, it's uh, a lot of things have to line up just perfectly. So, our dead pilot this time is Sterling by Daniel Sterling. Dan has written on some pretty great shows, including South Park, King of the Hill, The Daily Show, The Sarah Silverman Program, The Office, Girls, The Grinder. He is also the writer of the feature films The Interview and Longshot. Uh, in my interview with him, we talk about how it took over 10 years to get from his script Florsky to Longshot getting made. Uh, he also has some great stories about all the madness surrounding the interview and why the writer is the only one who doesn't get a bodyguard. Uh, we get into his daddy issues. There's lots of good stuff. Um, man, the cast for this read was really good. We had Nat Faxon from Friends from College as Philip Sterling. We had Hannah Simone from New Girl as Scarlett. John Cryer from Two and a Half Men, as if I had to say that, as Lloyd, Malcolm Barrett from Preacher and Timeless as Jack, Nicole Bloom from Superstore as Shelby, Felicia Day from Supernatural as Faye, and Daniel David Stewart from Catch-22 as Mitch and the Bartender. So now, recorded live at the Writers Guild Foundation, uh, here is Sterling, followed by my interview with Dan Sterling, after a brief message. Hello there, ghouls and gals. It is I, April Wolf. 
I'm here to take you through the twisty, scary, heart-pounding world of genre cinema on the exhilarating program known as Switchblade Sisters. The concept is simple. I invite a female filmmaker on each week and we discuss their favorite genre film. Listen in closely to hear past guests like the Babadook director, Jennifer Kent, Winter's Bone director, Deborah Granick, and so many others every Thursday on MaximumFun.org. Tune in if you dare. <laughs> it's actually a very thought-provoking show that deeply explores the craft and philosophy behind the filmmaking process while also examining film through the lens of the female gaze. So, like, you should listen. Switchblade Sisters. This is Sterling Hello. by Dan Sterling. <laughs> it's the cold open. We're in the control room of TV news magazine Timeline. On multiple monitors is a live feed of news correspondent Jack Winthrop. He's morally upright. He's in a motel bathroom lying in wait for an ambush interview. Our hero, producer Philip Sterling, is at the console with the technical director and other key staff. Uh, where's Mitch at this point? Anyone else concerned that we're about to roll camera and we don't have a director? Jack on the monitor addresses the control room. The perp still hasn't texted me. He must have figured out it was an ambush. I've done this a hundred times. These guys are never late. Philip hits the talkback button on his headset to respond. No, no, no. This guy's a polygamist. He's got eight wives and 12 kids. His life is chaos. Okay? The child molesters are the punctual ones. <laughs> Check that, he just walked in. The control room scrambles into gear. On the monitor, Jack charges out of the bathroom and greets a fat redneck dirtbag who looks stunned. Mr. Grebs, I'm Jack Winthrop with Timeline. Oh, uh, uh, uh I don't, uh... Perhaps you were expecting to find the 17-year-old girl you met on the internet and hoped to take as a wife? Boom! Yes! He always nails those rhetorical questions. You gotta give him that. Mr. Grebs, you're a polygamist. How many sexual partners would you say you've had in just this past week? Wow, a stunningly irrelevant question. Boy, he's in rare form today. Uh, about uh, eight sexual partners, I guess. Boy, I feel like this just became an ad for polygamy. <laughs> Mitch, in his 30s, wearing a headset, rushes in. Uh, sorry, guys. Any issues? Uh, just some existential ones about whether our work benefits the public, but um, now the cameras are all working. Okay, good, because you got to see this. He hits a button, switching some monitors to CBS News. Scarlett Lacey just got fired from CNN. It's everywhere. You're late because you've been watching TV news? <laughs> Are you struck by the irony of that? Nope. I live in the moment. Here it comes. They're replaying it on CBS. On the monitor, Scarlett Lacey, 30s, beautiful, does a live stand-up report on CNN. The earth shakes from nearby bombs. I'm in a village 30 miles north of Aleppo. As you can hear, we're under extremely heavy bombardment and... <laughs> I mean, oh, excuse, okay, excuse me. <clears throat> Residents are attempting to evacuate, but artillery is coming from multiple... <laughs> she explodes with laughter, laughter that keeps going. <laughs> from an active war zone? Oh, that is so, so unfortunate. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Something <clears throat> unintentionally hilarious has just... <laughs> oh my God, this is such a clusterfuck. We cut to coverage of this story by a CBS anchor. This is the latest and strangest of PR catastrophes for the respected but notoriously outspoken reporter. Her network's frustration with her has mounted over nearly a decade. And we roll a CBS clip package of Scarlett's greatest hits. We're in a congressman's office. Scarlett conducts a live interview with a congressman. Your conference has kept the bill from debate on the House floor. Is there any hope that an agree... 
Okay, I'm sorry, but we're discussing women's health legislation, and you've stared at my thighs for 85% of this. And we're in an office building where Scarlett accosts a businessman flanked by security. Mr. Harding, are the findings in the SEC report corrected? Did you participate in insider trading? Jesus, Scarlett, I'm your boss. And I'm upholding integrity in one division of your company. Arguably, you should be thanking me. Back at the anchor, we're at the anchor desk, Scarlett Anchors. She's live on air reading from a prompter. The missing executive is believed to have connections to Mexican drug cartel figures, which may explain why... My apologies, that is pure speculation. We have no proof of that. <laughs> Disclosure, I was called in to fill for Brett at the last minute and couldn't review the copy before this broadcast. This is why I try to avoid guest anchor duty. The search is being led by... End clip package. Wow. I mean, she fought the good fight. I always rooted for her. I mean, you know, until now with her laughing in a war zone. Not the noble end I would have expected for her. Mitch points to the monitor where we see cops hauling Grebs away. Say goodnight to Grebs. Philip takes an incoming call on his cell. Oh, hey, honey. Yeah. No, I'll be home for dinner. Yeah, we're just finishing up with a polygamist. Yeah. Another one of those stunts. <laughs> Yeah, what can I say? Philip is unaware that Jack, on eight monitors, hears him and frowns. Oh, no, no, no. It's a real important story. Yeah. You're not aware of America's rampant polygamy ep epidemic? <laughs> the staffers see Jack reacting. They realize a talkback switch must be open on Philip's headset. Faye, I always suggest more relevant stories, but Jack can only interview perverts and psychopaths. <laughs> yeah, no. With anyone else, he knows he'd be outwitted. Jack... <laughs> Jack grows angrier. The staffers try to get Philip's attention, but he keeps turning away from them. Yeah, either that, or deep down, he's a pervert himself. <laughs> In fact, his son's hamster went missing a month ago. Hundred bucks says I can find it with a flashlight and a pair of pliers. <laughs> on the monitor, Jack now shouts and pounds on the camera lens. Philip finally notices Jack in a rage. Oh, shit. Uh, I gotta call you back. My friggin' talkback's been on?! Philip braces himself, then Jack, releases Jack, the button. Jack, I didn't mean what I said. Of course you did. You thought I couldn't hear. That's when people say what they mean. Okay, look. Yes, but what fueled it are, are my issues, my, my personal issues. This look, is progress. Jack looks open to hearing more. It's just, you know, at, at my age, my dad was reporting for medevac helicopters, taking fire in Vietnam and making Nixon's enemy list. You know, he, he risked everything, every day of his life. I'm aware of your famous father. What's your point? I'm just saying, you know, by comparison, entrapping polygamists feels less important and courageous and tasteful. <laughs> you know what? Let me walk that back for okay. a second. <laughs> <laughs> Have I ever told you you remind me of your father? Not in terms of career success, obviously, but <laughs> I remember how sanctimonious and condescending he was. More like a priest than a reporter, really. Okay, so you're not taking this well. Okay. But uh, he had balls, and I respected that. You didn't seem to inherit them so much, just the other stuff. Okay, see, now you're making this a personal... If you had an ounce of your daddy's balls, you wouldn't trash me behind my back. You'd stand up and do it to my face. Yeah. No, it's a fair criticism. Philip furiously scribbles with a Sharpie on a white piece of paper, then grabs some scotch tape. I can be passive-aggressive, and I do avoid face-to-face -face conflict. I'm seriously going to work on that. At some point. Not today. Philip slaps the paper on a monitor next to the live image of Jack's face. It shows an arrow pointing to Jack with the phrase, I eat butts. <laughs> the crew explodes with laughter. Okay, what's, what's going on? 
Why is everyone laughing? <laughs> Philip, done with this exchange, quietly packs his briefcase to head home as the crew continues to laugh and snap photos of the screen. We fade out, end of cold open. We're in Act 1, Scene A. We're in a large executive office with a work desk area, a living, uh, living room TV viewing area, and a small dining area. Windows look out onto a newsroom bullpen. Lloyd Foote, sweaty personality, paces, wrapping up a call. Philip enters. Uh, no, no, j just the half hour. Uh, in, in fact, do you offer 15-minute sessions? Mm -hmm. oh, oh, okay, then. I I'll see you at noon. Wow. Really? What? You just scheduled a hand job in front of me? And you <laughs> bargained? You know what those people go through? Just pay the full price, for Christ's sakes. That's not what that was. No, uh, listen, we're, we're adding a correspondent. Seriously? What spurred that decision? Uh, an unusual opportunity, and it's just as well. I, you, you can't work with Jack anymore, and things have reached a certain level of... Uh, Jack storms in. You son of a bitch! Unsustainable hostility. <laughs> Jack shows the I Eat Butts photo. They posted this witless assault on my dignity in the break room. My kids visit me there. Uh, uh, Philip, that, that was disrespectful. Disrespectful? Why aren't you firing him? Why is he allowed to behave like this? Did he find something incriminating on you? Oh, he incriminates himself in front of me on an hourly basis. Most of what he enjoys in life exists in a legal gray area. That's fair to say, right? No? Uh, Jack, Jack, uh, Philip is extremely good at his job. That's 90% of why we keep him. And the other 10? Uh, his dad's Peter Sterling, who essentially built this network. There's a, an institutional sense of obligation here. Huh. Did you know your career hinges on their sense of obligation? I mean, it's not printed on my pay sub, but I had a clue. <laughs> Did you know that Lloyd's more interested in pleasing my dad, who retired 20 years ago, than you? Jack seethes, then, at Philip. You're 38, unmarried, and childless. Philip okay. looks actually stung. Well, that's out of left field. You maligned me for the story on polygamy because you can't see the danger of it. Why? Because you don't have a daughter who could wind up with that monster. And you don't know what marriage means. You've rejected the pillars of adulthood. You have no stake in society. Why are you so focused on people's personal lives? It's always the same with guys like you. You're the president of the local Rotary chapter, and then we learn you've got a dungeon where you have sex with baby kangaroos. I don't have, I don't have sex with baby kangaroos. Jack, no one's saying you do. No, no. <laughs> That's not true. I strongly implied it. I, I know. I know, but I'm trying to defuse the situation. Well, don't! Okay, I'm not ready to defuse. I've been attacked. Just because I'm not married with kids doesn't mean I have no stake in society. I have a long-term girlfriend. That's how people do it now. They wait to have kids. And what's your endgame? To have your kid's high school graduation and your funeral on the same weekend? Sure, yeah. There's a tidy symmetry in that. Guys, guys, okay, we, we need to discuss the new correspondent. Who is it? It's Scarlett Lacey. Okay, we're, we're negotiating with her. That's the most cynical ploy for ratings I've ever heard. Yeah, he's right. I admire her, but she's clearly out of control right now. Oh, you don't know that. Now, there, there could be other explanations for her behavior. Philip flips on the TV. Scarlett is being interviewed by a Fox News anchor. <laughs> I was high. See? <laughs> CNN's about to report it, so I might as well get it out there. I mean, look, as you know, my assignments subject me to exceptionally stressful conditions. And sometimes, before going on camera, I will take a very small dose of cannabis for relaxation and focus. Are you hearing this? <laughs> it's been helpful 99% of the time. However, the potency of the cannabis provided by my local fixer was overwhelming. <laughs> so Philip. it was challenging to remain composed when, unfortunately, circumstances conspired against me. We have bystander cell phone footage of that. Let's take a look. On the video, Scarlett's assistant, Shelby, <gasps> eats coffee cake while Scarlett reports. 
Startled by an explosion, Shelby chokes and spits chunks into the eye of Scarlet's producer, who flails, trying to get cake out of his eyes. Finally falling over, Scarlet doubles over with laughter. I mean, as you can see, the whole thing was borderline vaudevillian. It would have taken exceptional self-control not to react to that. Are you concerned about sending the message that it's okay for reporters covering events like this to do so while in altered states? The problem is reporters aren't covering events like this. News divisions barely have anyone in the field. I know it is scary to be in places with a risk of kidnapping and execution, but those are the places we most need to be. As for self-medicating, I think my peers should do it too. I mean, not with cannabis, but with supplemental testosterone. Philip shuts off the TV. Lloyd, I love what she stands for, but come on. I mean, she's notoriously difficult and scandal-tainted. I can't be attached to the hip to that. Well, she's not attached yet. You'll need to charm her and seal the deal. What? She's ambivalent about the gig. <laughs> Understandably. It's a terrible move for her. I mean, can you persuade her with more money? We're offering $4 million a year. Son of a bitch! <laughs> Jack storms out, leaving Philip and Lloyd alone. Wow. That's more than three times what Jack makes. I mean, to see him emasculated like that, for me, it's like ice cream, but, you know, for you, it's bad politics. Exactly. I am socially clumsy. The, the tact thing is your bag, and that's why I want you on this. That's a lie. Try again. You need to charm her or you're fired. What? Well, corporate wants her bad, but, uh, but if she doesn't like you, we'll have to find someone else. And you're off Jack's team, so... She's your life raft. Well, what about my father's legacy? I thought that protected me. Uh, it did, but with these star salaries draining our budgets, uh, nepotism just isn't affordable anymore. I mean, the, the whole system has just gone to hell. So I'm auditioning for this hot mess of a person just to keep my job? Something about that strikes me as less than completely just. Oh, no, it's more than unjust. It is outrageous. And I'm going to let corporate know that the second I sense they're actually open to constructive criticism. <laughs> You're meeting her at Blue Hill Farms tonight at 8 p.m. And we dissolve to scene B. We're in Philip's apartment, a swank Manhattan apartment. Philip's girlfriend, Faye, is about to leave when Philip enters. Hey, you knocking off early today? No, I just need a break from the office. And for the next 30 minutes, Lloyd's engaging the services of a sex worker. Oh, well, you got a notice from the dentist. You're overdue for a cleaning. I will get right on that. But first, I would like to get right on you. <laughs> huh? I'm hitting on you. You know, I thought I'd change it up, try to put some sass into it. Well, you definitely did that, but I have got to run. Come on, you know it's been four months. Yeah, well, we've been together for a long time. I think that's just kind of how it goes. Well, I mean, maybe we should, you know, take new steps in the relationship. Faye looks apprehensive. She checks her watch, then... Okay, take off your pants and we'll get you taken care of. <laughs> she starts putting her hair back in a ponytail. No, I, that's not... <laughs> All right. I mean, okay. <laughs> but your coat, I mean, oh, oh yeah, good thinking. She zips her coat and puts her hood over her hair. <laughs> no, that's not really what I Okay. That's not what I meant so much so, but okay. What do you want? I don't know. Just maybe to get married and have kids, have a stake in society. Stake in society? That sounds oddly traditional values coming from you. Well, I'd love not to be dead before my kid's high school graduation. It's the middle of a work day, and I am offering you oral sex. Are you sure you want to scrap that in favor of an argument? He thinks for a second, then... That's a solid point. We'll stay the course. <laughs> As he gets his pants off, the intercom buzzes. Who the hell can this be? In his underwear, he crosses to the intercom. Yes. 
Hi, this is Shelby Brick, Scarlett Lacey's assistant. Uh, oh, uh, Shelby, I, I wasn't expecting you. Did I, did I misunderstand? Uh, Scarlett can't make dinner tonight, so she needs to do lunch. She's here. Scarlett Lacey from CNN? Yeah, I'll, I'll explain later. Just stay in the mindset you were in. Um, <laughs> Shelby, uh, this is inconvenient. Does Scarlett typically make unannounced visits like this? No, I've actually been calling you all morning, but I had the wrong number. <laughs> Are you also the one who gave her too much dope and choked on cake? Philip, I've got a client meeting. No! Okay, um, okay we, uh, just tell her I'll, I'll be down in five minutes, okay? Okay, she's signaling. Um, she can't wait. Son of a bitch! Okay, the mood's definitely over. Nope, that, nope the mood is not over. Is the issue that you're in the bathroom? Do you need to finish on the toilet? <laughs> Okay, now it's over. <laughs> As Philip pulls up his pants, Faye breezes out the door, and we dissolve to a 24-hour diner. Scarlett and Philip have lunch. <laughs> Philip's in the midst of his sales pitch, which clearly pains him. So, um, while Timeline has been somewhat uh, flexible in, in terms of its level of investigative rigor and social relevance, our, our operation is well-funded and uh, allows for state-of-the-art electronic news gathering. Um, we, have a, we have a large audience and all the tools to bring them outstanding work. Scarlett looks at Philip confused. So you're saying you have nice cameras? <laughs> is that your whole pitch? Uh... No, no, there's, there's also the large audience. Wow, you poor guy. That is a terrible pitch. Yeah, well, I, I didn't have as much time to flesh it out as I expected. Right. That was the point of my surprising you. <laughs> I mean, imagine the insulting load of crap you would have worked up by dinner. <laughs> Philip softens a bit. She's completely right, after all. Scarlet flags a waiter. Martini's okay? Off Philip's nod to the waiter. Two. Okay, let's end your suffering. I've seen Timeline. I get where I'm at, and it's terrible. I just need to know if we can function together, because to be honest, I, I hear stories. Wait, you've, you've heard I'm difficult? That's right. <laughs> With all due respect, that's amazing. I mean, com considering you're the... I mean, I saw the I eat butts photo. It negates the works well with others line in your resume. Though I get Jack Winthrop does, in a sense eat butts. <laughs> <laughs> Yet I said it only after eight years of working with him. So you're looking at the paragon of professionalism and self-restraint. <laughs> okay, look, listen, I get it. I mean, your father is my idol. To work for Jack Winthrop after being raised by Peter Sterling, I mean, I don't know how you do it or why. Philip looks pained and starts to try to answer. No, it's okay. I don't mean this to be an inquisition. I mean, you must have questions for me too. Well, uh, one comes to mind regarding your assistant. Oh my God, you have never met someone so bad at so many things. It's why I can't fire her. She'd never work again. The three weeks she was out with malaria, it was like I was living in a fantasy land. <laughs> the martinis arrive. There's four of them. Wait, you ordered two sets? It's been the worst week of my life. And we're supposed to get to know each other. All right, then allow me a more personal question. You care about journalism to the point of self-destruction. So why are you taking this job? You answered your own question. I've self-destructed. I've pissed off every last person. No one will take me on. And I have an expensive habit. Weed? My husband. He's an aspiring businessman. He started restaurant chains, hotels, galleries. He's just never finished one. Oh, so you're not selling out. You're just completely screwed. Yeah. Well, that's a relief. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about you, Philip? You married? 
Uh, basically. I mean, I've been with the same woman eight years, so pretty much. Except not. Well, I mean, it's for good reason. You know, she, she doesn't want to marry until everyone can. But gay marriage has been legal since 2015. Yeah, it's not, it's not just the U.S. I mean, Uganda. Yeah. I mean, Uganda's insane on homosexuality, you know, and, and, and the Middle East, obviously. Oh, so she's waiting until justice takes hold across the entire planet. Well, I mean, <laughs> there's worse things than a, you know, political conscience. Are you having sex? <laughs> wow. I mean, I know you're a good reporter, but good Lord. I mean, we'll be spending 12 hours a day together. No, you're right. You're right. We'd be having this kind of conversation inside of a week. Okay. I'll have the courage of my convictions and go first. Over the past year with my husband, I, I just can't. His misery and his putting us so far in debt's just been a fatal turnoff. I can imagine, but uh, doesn't he complain? Of course. So I, you know, I don't sleep with him. I just take care of his needs, you know, to appease him. I'm not cheating. But to be honest, it's only because I'm under a public microscope. With that, without that, all bets would be off. Philip scans his own mind and then crumples devastated. Oh, oh God. Ugh, I'm so sorry. I struck a nerve. This is the downside of the two martini lunch. The waiter passes by. Philip flags him. Yeah, we'll have another round. <laughs> and we fade out. End of Act 1. We're in Act 2, Scene D. We're still in the diner several martinis later. They're not sloppy, just uninhibited. Philip, why are you in this job? I could tell in two minutes that you're a smart, passionate guy who deserves to be doing more. Yesterday, in a fit of rage, Jack told me I'd inherited my father's sanctimony, but none of his balls. He's right. I joined the show fresh out of grad school. I climbed the ladder and got comfortable. I thought about leaving, but the marketplace for legit TV news is almost non-existent. Without a secure, high-paying job... You were afraid you'd lose Faye. Philip says nothing. You kept the job that's beneath you to hold on to a woman who doesn't satisfy you. I like stability. I've never tried it. What about you? You can't accept this gig. I mean, all you've got is integrity. The world thinks of you as an outspoken, self-destructive pain in the ass with the moral rectitude of Gandhi. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. You can't squander that. So what do I do instead? Pump gas, shine shoes, spend time repairing old business relationships, and God, get control of your husband. Sell the house. In a year, someone will take a chance on you. You're too good. Scarlet thinks for a few beats and looks at Philip. If you do it, I'll do it. Me? Do what? Walk away from timeline. Whoa. Uh, look, I, I meant all of what I said. I'm just I'm surprised how seriously you're taking it. I mean, we've had a few. Everyone I know is begging me to grab the life raft, and you're the only one who's pointed out that in the long run it's going to sink me. And the fact that you're saying it is especially meaningful since your master sent you here to say the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, I've abdicated my responsibilities. I feel bad about that. Vintage Philip, full of righteous passion, paralyzed to act. Classic people pleaser. That is vintage me. How can you, how can you know that? How long has this lunch been? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? We'll both go home, hunker down, re-strategize our careers, sort out our relationships, which we need to get on track or end while we're both still attractive. You know what? Yeah, you're right. We can't settle for mediocrity. We're practically in the second half of our life. 
They've high five. Meanwhile, we seem to get along famously. I mean, between gigs, let's try to have more lunches like this. Deal. And we cut to Philip's apartment. Philip recovers watching TV. <laughs> Faye enters looking rumpled. She's surprised to see Philip. Hey, how was dinner? What? Why do you look like that? I got drunk and quit my job. <laughs> what? Why would you do that? A number of reasons, chiefly that it was turning my soul into a slurry of blood and ash. He thinks for a beat. And, you know, I know I brought up having a baby earlier in a kind of whimsical manner, but I'm serious. We should. Wh why now would that be on your mind? Because I'd like to make a difference somewhere. It's going to be a while before I can do it professionally, and I don't know. Why, why shouldn't we have a kid? Living organisms reproduce. No, I've, I've seen it on Jane Goodall documentaries. <laughs> You just want this because you're unsatisfied with your life right now. When else do people take big steps forward? When they're content? Phil, Philip, this whole baby thing, I, I don't know. It sounds crazy, but I just read the latest intergovernmental report on climate change. Human population is one of the main... Hey, what happened to us? Nothing. Well, something isn't right. You're avoiding intimacy, and you're insanely toned. Your arms are ripped, and... <laughs> Your hair is a mess. Wait a minute. Oh, my God. Jesus Christ. You've had sex in the last hour, haven't you? F Philip, that... Uh, Faye that reflexively is... checks her watch. Oh, my God! <laughs> Faye winces, realizing she gave herself away. You looked at your watch! She, scan she scans her mind for something, anything to say. Philip? Yes? Uh, I don't want to be argumentative, but I, I do want to say that it wasn't in the last hour. We finished around 2.30, and it's almost 5 now. <laughs> if that makes any difference at all. Philip stares at this helpless, pathetic person, dumbfounded. And we cut to Scarlett's office. Scarlett and Shelby unpack. Through Scarlett's window, we see the timeline bullpen. Scarlett takes an aspirin. Can you try Philip Sterling again? I really need to let him know I took the job. Will do. Scarlett looks around, suddenly confused. Wait. Shelby, is this the furniture from my office at CNN? Yes. It's their furniture. They own it. Okay. So in New York, that would be second degree grand larceny. Shelby concentrates and scans her brain. Then... I feel how much you want me to anticipate your next instruction and like just do it without you even asking. But I literally have no idea what you're thinking. Return the $50,000 worth of stolen property before I'm indicted, please. Got it. Makes sense. <laughs> Are you still dating that guy? Which one? You know, the one who's older and rich and wants to marry you and move to Scarsdale and have kids? No, we're done. I told him I'm still, I, I still want to accomplish more in my career. Scarlet curses to herself as Shelby crosses out. <laughs> Philip enters holding a box of his personal effects. Oh, hello. Seriously? I've been trying to reach you. I mean, after our lunch with the whole... I know, I know, I know. It was a great lunch, and Philip, you gave me so much to think about, and I'm going to hold myself to all of it somehow, and the epiphanies are still with me, but the vodka's not, and I'm hundreds of thousands in debt. Okay, that is a lot of money. But you, I mean, you can actually take time off. I mean, your girlfriend at least has a job. Faye's been having an affair. Oh. Yeah. I probably wouldn't have you know, put that together without you being so honest with me. So what now? Is she moving out? No. We've 
decided to work on it. Scarlet stares in confusion. No, it's it's not as bad as it sounds. It it turns out the guy she's been seeing is married. So she thought he was leaving his wife, but he's not. So in a pretty major coincidence, when I confronted her yesterday, it was just after they'd seen each other to say goodbye. You know, which they did by having sex, you know. Again, I know I know it sounds bad on paper and and also verbally. Um <laughs> Scarlet stares at Philip in disbelief. Okay, I know what you're going to say. Vintage Philip, you know, a man of paralysis, classic people pleaser. Well, you're wrong. I got her to make some big concessions. She's letting go of her Uganda policy. So, actually, Faye and I are kind of engaged. Proud of me now? Scarlet stares. Are you kidding me? Crap. It's so weird. I met you yesterday, and I can't believe how much your approval matters. You want my approval? Don't quit your job for this woman. Stay and work with me. Ugh, I'm flattered, but no. I've been here 10 years. It's time to push myself. Lloyd enters. Uh, everyone settling in oh, and out. Okay. Lloyd, okay, I'm glad you're here. Did you get a chance to look at my story proposal on Boko Haram in Nigeria? I know it's not your typical timeline fair, but for that reason, I think we'll get eyeballs. No one is covering it. and I'm in love with it. Really? Absolutely. Uh, I'm cranking it through the Lloyd 5000, but uh, I think it is fantastic. Um, or, if not that, something else. That's... <laughs> This is odd. I can't tell if your blatant lack of sincerity is deliberate, like a psych out, or if you just have no competence in the art of basic deception. What am, what am I seeing here? Uh, can you give us a minute? Definitely. He rushes out. Okay, you know he can have you fired, right? But the man is so completely odious. Yes, there's still a right way to manage him. You need this job. I worry by the time I get home, you'll self-destruct. I worry the same thing about you. And we dissolve to a neighborhood bar. It's night. Philip and Faye are at the bar. Faye is distinctively more attentive than we've seen her. She's trying. Oh, God. I smell truffle fries. Oh, it's been so long since we've gone out for a burger. <laughs> why don't we do this more? What? I'm, I'm saying, why don't we come here more? Because you were having an affair? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was, that was hostile, not, uh, not helpful. Well, you know, I probably deserved it. <laughs> Not probably, definitely. Oh, God, this is so awkward. It is, it's reason enough not to have an affair. <laughs> <laughs> not that that's the okay, main yeah, reason. That, that Faye, think... can you just, yeah, please stop. Okay. A bartender approaches. Cocktails for you two? Uh, just a club soda for me. I thought we were here to drink. Oh, I know, I know. I just shouldn't. Shouldn't? You know... I learned recently there's alcoholism in my family. My great-grandmother, her brother, drank himself to death. Also, she played the dulcimer, not professionally. <laughs> Philip, <laughs> Philip looks at her like she's insane. <laughs> oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I'm pregnant. And it is not ours. I am so sorry. I'll come back in a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Philip is stone silent. And I'm sorry I talked about the dulcimer. That was that was just so random. Um, this is this is hard for me. What is what is going on in your head right now? Philip has no response. He just stares blankly until he notices on the TV that Timeline is airing. He asks the bartender, hey, uh, "Can you turn this up?" The bartender turns up the volume. We hear Jack and Scarlett on the TV. It's my honor to introduce the newest member of the Timeline team, Scarlett Lacey. Thank you, Jack. 
I'd like to begin by acknowledging the legendary Timeline producer, Philip Sterling, who after 10 years with the program is moving on. We see a photo of Philip in an over-the-shoulder box. Philip was known for many things, including his quiet despair over the state of broadcast journalism. <laughs> Jack, still visible in the two-shot, looks horrified. <laughs> he was also known for his outstanding performance and never letting his personal views divert him from the task. Scarlett's about to toss back to Jack, but hesitates. Just on a, a more personal note, Philip's taking courageous steps in his life. It's inspiring. I mean, to see someone, perhaps not born with an abundance of bravery, acquire some later in life. I hope wherever Philip is tonight, he's pleasing no one. Or rather, he's pleasing himself. She considers clarifying this, but quits while she's ahead and goes back to the teleprompter. Tonight on Timeline, Jack files his report on the polygamy crisis in America. <laughs> Jesus, where's all? Where's that all coming from? What, what is she like? Your best friend? You know, it's so weird. I think she actually might be. And he gets up and marches out. We fade out. End of Act Two. We're in the tag. We're in Lloyd's office. Scarlet, Lloyd, Jack, and others look over story proposals. Scarlet looks repulsed. I don't see a story in this. The man had sex with a human skull. It's the worst moral outrage imaginable. He's mentally ill. That's not a story. Where are we in finding me a producer? Uh, still looking. At the moment, there's reticence among qualified candidates due to, well, uh, your reputation. Scarlett, do you have a mother? Imagine this happened to her remains. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, but if we do a story on a guy who humps the eye sockets of the dead, why don't we just get naked and oily and do an hour of actual porn? I mean, why make the pretense of reporting? Scarlet, easy on your first day. Philip is in the doorway. Philip, Jesus. <laughs> I, I don't even know what to say. I mean, I am, I am so sorry about the, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the affair. Uh, or I don't, know, I don't know what word you want to use, the, the cheating. Uh, I just, just, I mean, sh she had sex with someone else. I mean, you know, if it, if it helps, the, the whole building is talking about it, and people are mostly taking your side. <laughs> Okay, uh, can Philip and I get a minute? The others clear out, leaving Scarlett and Philip. Weren't you off to quit the news business and plant your seed? Yeah, yeah. I was beaten to it. <laughs> beaten to what? I, I don't follow. He just looks at her. No. <laughs> oh, Philip, no. Yeah, I know. Okay, when you actually get out there and start dating again, I am terrified for you. You need so much help not getting your ass kicked by the whole planet. You, you worry about me? You're supposed to be here humbly reinventing yourself as somebody who people can work with. I walk in at 9.02 a.m. and you're about to blow the place up. Get your act together. He catches a whiff of something in the air, reaches into her purse, grabs her weed, and tosses it in the trash. Okay, you know what? Don't bring that to work. And suck it up on the necrophilia story. Okay, Just earn some goodwill and in a month, we'll talk about substance. Scarlet smiles at Philip. I have a producer. Lloyd, Jack, and the others return and warmly welcome Philip back. Maybe it's the start of something workable. And we fade out, end of show. 
I'm Travis McElroy. I'm Courtney Enlow. I'm Brent Black, and we're the hosts of Trends Like These. Trends Like These is an internet news show where we take the stories trending on social media and go beyond the headlines. We'll give you the actual facts of the story and not just the knee-jerk reactions. Plus, we end every episode with a ray of hope that we call the Wi-Fi of the week. So join us every Friday on Maximum Fun. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Trends Like These. Real-life friends talking internet trends. I'm here with Dan Sterling. Hey, Dan. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to have you. Uh, I want to start off, as I often do, by telling you my favorite joke from the script. Oh. Um, So you'll just have to suffer through that. I think it was, there were a few to choose from, but I think it ultimately was uh, Shelby's line uh, where she says to her boss, I... I feel how much you want me to anticipate your next instruction and just do it without asking. But I literally have no idea what you're thinking. It was the line that I was most looking forward to hearing. And Nicole Bloom, I feel like, just nailed it. She did. And there's nothing like a great uh, dumb character. And it's a smart, dumb joke. Right. And that's one of those jokes that has absolutely nothing to do with the way anybody speaks. That's like my fantasy of how dumb people would speak to me in my life. That they would have some awareness of their failure, but... Nobody talks like that. Uh, That's what's so great about it. It's yeah. such an intelligent line <laughs> that is revealing just complete stupidity and right. uh, acknowledging her radar kind of role and how she's just failing at it. And I loved it. Thank you. Thank um, you. So, Dan, I'm realizing we've we've known each other for a long time, but I don't really know a whole lot uh, about you and about uh, like how you got started doing this. Well, uh, where are you from? I am from Philadelphia. Uh, I like to say West Philadelphia, but it's always a temptation for somebody to come back with born and raised. And I don't want you to do that. Okay. I just, yeah. But I did come uh, from the same neighborhood as Will Smith. And I think we're, we're both more or less in the same trajectory. Uh, <laughs> show business. So. Sure. Um, and yeah. And then from there, I went to NYU and I knew I wanted to be a comedy writer um so even by the time you got you started at school you yeah were thinking comedy writer i was although at nyu the thing there uh, people when i was there they were sort of more interested in becoming like spike lee or martin scorsese or whatever and not you know so much interested in like uh poop jokes and saturday night live gags and all that but uh but i showed them <laughs> who um, were your like who was influencing you who were your big comedy i mean folks? Uh, there's not going to be a lot of surprises <clears throat> i would say like before going to college i was super into woody allen um and bill cosby quite frankly um and uh and super into saturday night live and monty python and um and then in college uh that was like peak seinfeld and friends which you've you've heard about and um uh yeah and then um you know i sort of figured out that i didn't really want to be a filmmaker i really wanted to write tv um while i was and there was that so. unusual there where most of most of your classmates were thinking film i think yeah i think it was that was really sort of like when you know indie film was taking off and right. kevin smith and everything and um uh, miramax uh, and all that and um but no i was really into like tv comedy uh and so i took a, a sitcom writing class uh that they had at at tish at the film school and uh looking back to, was that class helpful at all uh, you think? yeah it was. it was it was helpful in my realizing that i could 
uh, do it, that I could, you know, do the required thing that was required back then, which was to uh, completely ape the sound of somebody else's right. uh, show. Um, so I wrote a cheer spec and everybody seemed to really like it. Uh, and it was fun. Um, and so, yeah, from there I realized I wanted to be a, a TV writer, even though there wasn't a lot happening in New York at that time for sitcoms. It was all out here. Right. And did you come out here right after college? Uh, no, I stuck around for a couple of years because uh, I had a girlfriend who uh, was a poet and wanted to go to uh, Columbia Poetry School or whatever, the, the school for fancy poetry. Or maybe it was NYU. Anyway, I stuck around with her. And then, uh, and then that, when I finally sort of got out of that, I, or actually, I guess I got out of that by deciding that I had to get out here. And so, and then quickly discovered later on that she was a lesbian anyway. So it worked out uh, for both of us. Um, and uh, yeah, then I got out here and I got a PA job on Nick Frino, licensed teacher. Oh, wow. I remember that show. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I didn't do a great job as a PA. Uh, uh, it was better than some, but it was pretty terrible. And then right after that first season ended, I got a job uh, writing for South Park when they were just starting up because this writer from The Simpsons uh, or this writer uh, named Matt Selman, who was uh, going to maybe write for South Park for their first season, got a job instead on The Simpsons. And he told them to take a look at my third rock from the sun spec. So oh. Trey Parker and Matt Stone hired me based on that. And that um, was the first season? That was the first season, yeah. It was wow. just like them and me and Pam Brady. And then they brought on some other people. And they got rid of all of us, uh, except for Pam. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was there for like the first season, or some part of it anyway. Wow. So what was that like? So, I mean, the, the short had gone around, the Santa, you know, yeah. Jesus short, we, which we all watched. And on trade, video cassette. Traded video cassette. Like That's right. generation dubs of that video cassette, and it was a phenomenon. That's right. Um, viral before that word was used. <clears throat> so getting hired on that, even though the show was probably, you know, it wasn't like it was a big hit or anything, but that must have felt like a big deal. Well, I mean, it did pretty much out of the gate become a, a pretty big deal. But uh, no, it was very, it was very exciting because it was my first writing job. I couldn't believe I was going to make $800 a week and <laughs> never made anything like that in my life. Um, and also these guys were the funniest. I, I never knew anybody that was that funny in my life. I thought, I, you know, I was like the funniest guy on my floor in my dorm at NYU, but I had no idea that there are people that were not only this funny, but this erudite uh, and this sort of savage and vicious, not to me, but just um, they were so uh, unafraid in their comedy and so um, educated. I mean, Matt was, you know, this math whiz and Trey was like a, you know, an encyclopedia of every kind of film and television and especially musical theater. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I'd never met anybody at that level of talent or hilariousness. And I was, uh, I was rolling on the floor laughing so much in that room that I think it was actually off-putting to them. <laughs> and, it, and it may have hastened my departure there. Okay, so you, so the a season there, and then, and then you went to Jesse. And then I got hired, yes. And then I was told, you know, that there was an opportunity at, uh, yeah, with, where it was all happening. Um, at Bright Kaufman Crane and Jesse. And so then I went on Jesse and uh, met all these people that I'm still friends with. And, um, and then uh, it was there for two years. Uh, the, the road, the whole rocket. 
yeah. or rode the rocket all the way. So, so when you got that South Park job, did you have an agent, or was it just that you knew Matt Selman and he said, "Hey"? Yeah. yeah, no, my agent found me at South Park. South Park. Matt Selman was a friend of a friend. We weren't even close. He just knew I was looking around for a job at that time. And um, he had, had been on Seinfeld. And so, yeah, so then he, when he got the Simpsons offer, he decided to go with that. Uh, and so, by the way, he never left. He's still there today. Really? He's, yeah, he's the executive producer. So, so that really, so it was really a case of just coming out here, getting a job. You know, you got that PA job. Yeah. And you were just sort of meeting people and letting them know hey i'm writing i've got stuff and that really yeah you know, is is what led and to I was, getting in the door which and you've basically worked ever since that's right it's 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 the it's the it's the perfect and most boring uh way uh to do it like i came out i worked in a crap job in the business i networked a little bit i'm not very good at networking but i was did it a little bit and wrote tons of specs until one was good enough that it could sort of capture people's attention a little bit um, and then I had that lucky opportunity. It's like, it's like a, you know, it's like a big sort of sandwich of all the different ingredients that people give you the cliches about when they tell you about how to get a job. Um, so yeah. And then I never didn't work again, uh, you know, until the, until the strike, uh, that happened and may happen yeah. again. Right. Um, and, and you sort of bounce back and forth between, Live action and animation, right? You you were at, you were at King of the Hill at, at one point. Yeah, and then uh -huh. after Jesse, I went to King of the Hill for about four years. Okay. So, um, yeah, and then I went from there to being the executive producer of the Sarah Silverman program, um, and it was with that for the full run of it. Um, well, I guess in the middle of it, uh, when we were waiting in between the first and second seasons, that I jumped over to the Daily Show, okay. uh, where I thought. Was it was my biggest opportunity to move back east forever and uh, you know change change the world through my lefty politics and all that. Um, but instead, uh, the, the Sarah Show started airing while I was there, and it was sort of a hit. And it it I felt like it needed me more than the Daily Show did, which had a million guys working there that were smarter than me that probably should have had my job instead of me coming in over them. Uh, which uh, so I so you were brought onto the Daily Show as a like a, to to I was there to be to run it to uh, run so it. I was but you had not worked in in late in night. late night no no I met John Stewart um, at a at a Emmy party for Comedy Central uh, I only approached him because I wanted to tell be able to tell my mother that I had met him and I had had a few glasses of champagne and he seemed to know who I was I don't know why because I was I had just run one season of the Sarah Silverman program, and I was talking to him. He said, "Well, you know, you should come uh, run around my show." I was like, "Oh, okay, sure." <laughs> and the next day, I got a call saying that I, he was interested in me doing that. I was like, "What? That's ridiculous!" Um, and uh, so, anyway, so I went. Uh, but uh, it was in a transition period where his regular, his longtime showrunner was sort of getting ready to leave and. Um, so they needed somebody new because the person that was going to step into his place was getting ready to leave too. And um, but in the end, I mean, it, it would have been great. But like, I, uh, if I had stayed, but I feel like um, I just felt like they had so many people there that knew how it worked and right. it mean, could really. I think John had a theory about bringing somebody in from the outside to um, to freshen up the management situation there and all that, but. 
uh, there were incredibly talented people. I mean, this particularly this one guy I think of is uh, Tim, uh, who now runs uh, John Oliver's show. Okay. Probably co-created it with him. This, this, I mean, he sh- he should have had my job while I was there. Right. I mean, it must have been a stressful thing to to walk in not having worked in that form and be running. Yeah, it was show. it was crazy. It was totally intimidating. I was like, "What the fuck <laughs> are they thinking?" Having me here, it was very flattering, but like, you know, yeah. I mean, that's a serious operation. I mean, it's it's a you know it's a hundred person you know pretty much a journalistic op. It's it's a news organization right. basically, and uh, I was good at. Um, uh, dick jokes, uh, getting them in on time and stuff, right. and, and scoring, you know, uh, single camera dick jokes. But uh, yeah, it was a uh, it was a little bit crazy to think that I could really handle it. Not that I'm not proud of the work I did there. Right. Uh, I did some jokes that were not, not dick, dick jokes. jokes. Yeah, no, they, so that's they were Bush jokes. Yeah, <laughs> I should say at the time. So. So. You, it was King of the Hill where you kind of moved up because on, on, yeah. on Jesse, your story editor, executive story editor, yep. something like that, right? And yep. then so King of the Hill got you to the point where you were able to, you know, become a showrunner on right. Sarah Silverman program. Jumped up that, all those producer runs. And is that what, you know, was Greg was there and, you know, how did that work? How, how were you sort of nurtured and given that showrunning training on that show? Uh, well, I didn't get much showrunning training. I mean, I. The idea that I was prepared for doing it at Sarah's show was, again, once again, false, uh, except that I, I it was the right fit, and I, I think I took to it. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Greg Daniels was at King of the Hill, sort of a little bit emeritus while I was there, but he was still around there. He was just getting, sort of getting the office ready to go. Um, and uh I just wrote a lot of drafts there and spent a lot of hours there and um, sort of slowly rose up the the ranks. Um, and there were a couple of regimes there that I survived, I guess. Uh, you know, people who were running the show um, under Greg. And then, yeah, I, uh, um, yeah, I wasn't really... Uh, yeah, it was a little bit absurd to say that, I, that that was the proper experience for me to go run a single camera production intensive show but so you were you were learning as you went yeah i mean you're i guess in the job you're there's an infinite amount to learn so you're always going to be learning on the job to, to some extent but yeah it, it was just sort of trial by fire on that right right i mean it was a it was the right time for me to do it because i had nothing going on in my life and have a girlfriend or anything so i could i would wake up and think about that show and go to sleep thinking about it and be there all hours and uh you know, was willing to get into arguments with people about, you know, perfecting this or that. Like, I really cared. Right. Uh, not that I don't really care about my work now, but, uh, um, yeah, that was a good place to uh, to just, um, yeah, trial by fire training, I would say. And also, you know, I think just Sarah and I got along very well and, uh, and Rob Schraub. Um, so it was just a really fun, and it was sort of a small room. It was... You know, only like five people or something, and uh, um, and then production was very crazy on that show. But um, I had nothing else to do but hang out and watch right. it. Yeah. You know? um, and when did the when did the movies? When did you start dipping a toe into that? Um, well, at the end of the Sarah show, um, I or as that was ending, I wrote. Um, uh, a spec movie 
because uh, I hadn't written anything that was really my own original thing in a really long time. Um, uh, and that was this movie I called that was called Flarsky. Uh, it was this romantic comedy, this political romantic comedy. Um, and so uh, it was then when I sort of had a break um, and didn't really have another uh, job lined up, I mean, by design, because I wanted to try to take some time off and um, and find my own voice, as they say, but which is just, I don't know why I put it in quotes. Well, it's, it's, really, it's really what you were trying to do. It really is what I was trying to do. Um, and then, so I, I wrote that, uh, and then I got an agent, uh, I mean, within my agency. Um, a feature agent. A feature agent. Yeah, I didn't want to have a feature agent before that, because, um, you know, long ago I'd had one, but I didn't really have a feature that represented me well. And so I would be sent out for weird jobs that didn't make any sense. So he read it and liked it. And then fairly soon, in a few months, um, uh, said that Seth Rogen really liked it and that he and Reese Witherspoon were looking for a project to do together. So I went and started talking to Seth and his uh, partners, Evan Goldberg and James Weaver, about this and started a a very, very long (laughs) development process on this because it got made, but it got made 10 years you know, or it came out 10, ten years, years later. later as long shot uh, as long shot. Yeah. Um, which I loved. Thank you. Which thank I really you. have to, you know, everyone listening <laughs> needs to see long shot. It's, it's a really funny, really, yeah, it's just a great movie. Thank you. Thank you. Well, yeah, I'm really glad it's weird. Cause, uh, uh, I feel like it's gotten more attention almost since it came out digitally, uh, than it than it may have even in the theaters. Yeah, um, it feels like one of those where uh, you know, obviously, there's lots of stories about it being a little disappointing at the box office. I feel yeah. like it's gonna be one of those things where you're gonna be on a plane and you're gonna go to the bathroom and you're walking back to your seat. You're Everybody's gonna, see gonna be watching. Every screen is gonna have I love a shot it. on it. I really do believe that. Well, yeah, I do get a lot of nice notices about it, and they worked. Um, they worked really hard on it. I mean, they. I say that without me because uh, in the shooting, like. They had just a lot of stuff to consider that wasn't um, that, you know, because it gestated over 10 years um, and it was about politics and stuff and uh, and just our culture had changed so much. There's a lot of updating uh, that you have to do uh, tonally and uh you know, sort of uh, culturally sensitive. Right, but the substance of the political decisions they're discussing right. probably changed a lot. Definitely. I mean, I had written it shortly after, you know, the Iraq, you know, all my politics in it were about being pissed off about uh, the Iraq war and uh, climate change. Uh, not, yeah, well, not much. Well, there was later on I did uh, in one of the many drafts where we tried on different political causes in it. Uh, climate change. I mean, which is still in the movie, yeah. uh, but um, uh, that was one. That was one tack we took. Um, but it was trying to make it not be a movie that was trying to be uh, sanctimonious or preachy or you know if you uh, if you're trying too hard to to beat a message into your audience, particularly for Seth's audience, like it's just not. It's not going to work. Going to work and. Uh, Charlize was also quite worried about coming off as excessively earnest. And she says she had done a movie or two where that, you know, that had not that had not worked out well for her. Right. So. It, it rides the line incredibly well. The whole time I was watching, it was just like, this is so hard to pull off. Right. To, you know, to ride that line. And that did really well. Well, um, Seth is really good at that, at thinking about, you know, 
not not being obsessed with critics because he's not, but about imagining just being empathetic to the audience and thinking, what are they going to find obnoxious or hypocritical? And if we're going to do that, okay, but then we're going to call ourselves out on it, you know? And right. So they're, they're, he's quite thoughtful about that. So I assume Flarsky was what led to the interview. Right. Right. So, uh, yeah. So while we were trying to figure out how to get Flarsky set up and all that, um, Seth and Evan had this other idea that was just sitting around in their brains about um, they basically said, you know, what if you had gotten an interview with Osama bin Laden? You know, would you be tempted to to, to take the interview and to kill him or what would you do? And I, I said, oh, that's sort of a fun jumping off point. And they were like, yeah, we, we were thinking it would be like, you know, like Frost Nixon meets, you know, like a comedy Frost Nixon sort of thing. Um but uh, the problem is that Sasha Baron Cohen was already doing the dictator, so we didn't want to be uh, in the space of Middle Eastern dictators. So uh, I had to sort of go off and figure out um, a different, a different area, you know, but something that was as as exciting and uh, epic as Osama bin Laden. And I had a drink with a friend. He said, you know. Uh, you know, North Korea, that'd be kind of crazy. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's what it has to be. It has to be, you know, had them getting an interview with Kim. Uh, Kim. Well, I, it was just originally a fake Kim Jong person. Right. Uh, and then we very wisely <laughs> changed it to, it to the real to the actual guy. Yeah. That was Seth's decision or who was it a collective decision to make it the real guy? Uh, yeah, it, it was... Um, yeah, I'm not going to pin that on any one person. It was just something that we all thought, why don't we just see how it looks in the script? Uh, it was just a couple of months before production that thought, let's just see how that looks in the script. And uh, when we did it, we were like, oh, no, it has to be that. Uh, that just feels much more, you know, edgy. Um, and late in the game, the studio tried to get us to, to change our minds. Uh, uh even though they had sort of originally supported and uh, uh, we said, uh, you know, didn't, <laughs> didn't, <laughs> didn't, didn't, change your minds. Yeah. Uh, what did it, what was it like being uh, in the center of, of that when the hack happened and all of that? Um, n- very, very surreal. Um, Cause it really, really was not what I expected. And I don't think, I mean, nobody expected it. They wouldn't, if they had, never would have done it. Uh, but it was just something that so slowly started to creep up on us as we were getting reports back from uh, advisors to, you know, the Sony uh, executives that we, we may want to change certain things. And um, But there got to be a point where it was such a big story and, you know, Obama was weighing in on everything that uh, it got... Uh, every time I turned on a radio or whatever, I was like expecting it to be the first thing I heard about. Uh, And so it was interesting and terrifying because I, there was at a certain point that seemed like there was a possibility that people were going to get hurt, uh, that they, that there might be some, you know, they were launching missiles and stuff. And then I'd like, I really would be bummed out if innocent South Koreans or North Koreans got bombed or whatever because of this, stupid you know <laughs> movie um and then uh i started to worry about the uh whether they were going to actually release it um uh 
And then the premiere was pretty weird because by that point, everybody had bodyguards attached to them. Not me, but literally everybody else. The, 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 the stars, the, the star producers, just not me. They, 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 cut, they cut that off at the writer. Um, and then, yeah, when I saw the billboards starting to get ripped down uh, before the premiere date, that was depressing. Um, did you ever, did anyone come after you? Did you get any personal contact from people? Uh, well, after the hack, uh, when my cell phone number uh, got published to the world along with every other Sony email, I got a few calls from journalists and stuff like that uh, who uh, shouldn't have had my cell phone number. But no, I, I asked to be put on the phone with a security expert, uh, since Sony wasn't going to buy me a bodyguard. Uh, I wanted to talk to somebody. So they put me on with this Israeli security, uh, expert. And, you know, he said, you, and then for, forgive my Jewy accent. I'm a Jew, so it's okay. But I don't know. He's like, you, you the, the, no problem. You are going to be, you are the writer. Nobody cares about the writer. Uh, you're not a threat at all. And I'm like, uh, Sorry about that. Um, so yeah, he made it clear that uh, as a writer, that's when yeah. it pays off. It's every now and that's then, right. the fact that no one cares about the writers pays off. Yeah, well, I would like to do something that gets me close to murdered uh, <laughs> again. If I mean, it's it seemed very glamorous to me sure, that yeah. Seth and Franco and everybody, they all had bodyguards around them, and uh, it's just a you, you know you worked on something that will be in the history books yes <laughs> like the actual not the film history books i mean the, like the history but like it was a it was a historic event that you were associated with it's a pretty unique right situation right yeah uh and i was advised they said uh, you know enjoy this because you know your next film is just going to be ignored like every other film <laughs> and uh I did. I did miss it a little bit this time around. That, that nobody wanted to. There were no death threats. There, there were no death nothing. threats to anybody involved. No one had a bodyguard on long shot at all. No, no. Uh, so uh, yeah, no. I hear that the the there's a piece on the interview in uh, the museum uh, in Washington yeah. D.C. and I have to go see that. Uh, but yeah, it, uh, it's fun to do something of consequence. Sony might not view it that <laughs> way. Right. They might not view. May not have been as much fun for them. No, they really didn't yeah, like didn't it. Like, they didn't yeah. like the experience. Yeah. <laughs> it was just a flat. Uh, nobody's asking for sequels yeah. at this point. Um, all right, so it's the Office girls. It's an obnoxious resume. We can, we can, <laughs> we, we can agree. Let's um, let's talk about Sterling. Um, this, you know, you've you've written a bunch of pilots yes. before and probably after this uh, as well yeah. um but when i you know i've been haranguing you send me a pilot send me a pilot and this was the one so tell me a little bit about why why this one uh well the short answer to why this one is that people seem uh people in my orbit uh seem to really be attached to it like i kind of I kind of have some weird revulsion uh, towards pilots that I've written and haven't gone anywhere. Like it all just seems like it's not that my writing is trash, but like, you know, I only want to think about things that 
succeeded or whatever. What anyway? But uh, the the executives that I worked with at Twentieth and some of them who are now run Fox um, still, you know, for several years after quoted it and talked about it and um, and dangled the possibility of getting it made somewhere else and uh, um, which is all great. Um, and uh, and I don't even know exactly why. I mean, I mean, I guess I do understand why. Um, but but so when you know when you were, and I guess maybe after the first time you tried to get me to do this, uh, I got a lot more. Uh, uh, I, I was encountered a lot more sentimentality about this pilot from all these executives and stuff. I thought, all right, well, if he's looking for one, but. It, Give me this one. Give, give you that so, one, yeah. So tell me the, the, the origin of this one. You know, where, right. where did this originate? And, right. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, I understand. I, I get... I th- it's very personal. First of all, it's ridiculous that it's named Sterling. Not because it isn't very me, but just because... Uh, just hearing it read out loud um, and hearing the character have my last name, it all seemed a little... Phil and Chris probably should have... Uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who were the producers... Uh, on the pop, they pro- maybe they should have pushed me uh, to 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 name it something else. No, but. I just love that the title. They're saying that naming saying the title got a laugh. Yeah, because <laughs> that's <laughs> right. Sterling right. by Dan Sterling. Right. Oh, you know. Well, Phil and Chris know me very well, and uh, you know when I wrote it, they were like it's very very Sterlingy, uh, which is for them it's it's an adjective. Um, I mean. It's set in the news world because for a long time that was my default not show business thing where I could write about all my issues and stuff and have it be in a show busy adjacent world, but not just be, you know, uh, a writer writing about working in the sitcom world. Um, And it's doing it in TV news as a way to get to talk about things I like to talk about and play in social issues and politics and power and all that. Um, but I mean, at the center of it, I mean, it was very sort of autobiographical because I, I had just uh, sort of been dumped, not dumped by somebody, but uh, dumped out into being single at like age, I don't know, it was in my, I guess by then it was like my very early 40s um, when I had, by lo- I had hoped to be married uh, long before that um, and was feeling sort of um, down on myself for not having gotten that life, that part of my life figured out and not having had kids yet. And I think there's a lot of references in the pilot to not having a stake in grown up society or adult society. And that was my main uh, complaint about myself and uh, is that I couldn't get it together on the relationship front and didn't think that I was going to. Uh, it turns out then only months after I wrote that pilot, I would meet a woman, get engaged, and get pregnant uh, at an extremely rapid pace. But uh, so, I mean, that's sort of... Um, and then the truth is, is that the relation, the professional relationship uh, in that pilot between the, the guy who's the main character, who's sort of a me-ish type, uh, I, it's not really about my working relationship with Sarah Silverman, but it sort of is only in that I wanted to have like a, uh, a female counterpart who was, you know, more famous and in a certain way more powerful and uh, known for being outrageous and talented and, 
uh, and b- being a shitster, if if I can say that on your podcast. Yeah. And so in in a in a little bit uh, in a way, it's a little bit modeled not on her, but on a little bit of the dynamic that I had with her working for her, uh, working with her for those uh, those years uh, running her show. Did she act as therapist to you at all in the way? Yeah, is in the pilot. No, not, not really. I mean, we were we were definitely friends, still are friends, um, but uh, we were, you know, uh, I mean, maybe a little bit, but but that wasn't our main dynamic. Right. I mean, we were both in different dating situations at that point, and I can't, I, I probably didn't. I don't know. I think I did actually wind up giving her a lot of relationship advice. I mean, I don't think she took any of it, uh, but um, but, so, but not yeah, the so, other way around. Um, she wasn't. I yeah, I guess you. she did. No, no, that's not true. I mean, like I, you know, I sometimes sometimes she would come with me to an event where she knew I was trying to impress somebody. Uh, you know, as a uh, you know as a tool and uh, uh and it worked actually sometimes yeah. so so yeah i guess there was a little bit of that i'm, I'm sort of not remembering this until we're talking about it but yeah so um yeah it's funny yeah, because i don't think i've be... talked to sarah about the fact that i even wrote this thing or anything so really? I should, no i'll probably i should probably tell her so did you, so you, you have these sort of two elements of your, you know, your relationship with Sarah and just where you are in your life and you've transposed it because you can't write a, you can't write about a sitcom writer. So it's right. Be you. Um, and then that idea, did you bring it to Phil Lord and Chris Miller first? Is that who? Yeah, I think I made a deal to do something with them and then figured out what it was later. Um, yeah, I've done a couple of pilots with them. Um, yeah, they were great about steering me you know coming to them came to them with sort of a raft of ideas and they were great about steering me slowly toward the right thing and then Um, when you took it out to pitch it um do you remember the pitch much you remember you know what was it these things you're really talking about in the pitch these sort of autobiographical elements of this is where i am in my life and i want you know that yeah i think well i think uh that in the pitch uh there was a big uh, I'm trying to think I probably talked more about my father because I think my there was a version of my father that was in it more. I think he's referenced he's referenced a yeah, lot. and then but I think we actually took that character out of the show. but um I, I think one big part of pitching the show around town was talking about my relationship with with Sarah um, uh, and that that dynamic. But I'm trying to remember now what the specific anecdotes um were that that sort of captured people's attention because uh, it is but, it does feel like a big element even though the, the father's not doesn't appear yeah this idea of being in the shadow of yes. this more successful and more sort of upright and upstanding father yeah is a big part of that film character is that um in any way just by a total coincidence, every single pilot I write somehow has that. But it's a, it's a total it's a totally by accident that every single one of my characters has major daddy uh, daddy issues. And uh, uh, yeah, I mean he's he's sort of like this. Um, he's basically the the Jewish Indiana Jones. Uh, 
and he's lives on a farm down in Panama and he's I mean he's a scientist a neurobiologist but then he took off to Panama in his retirement and he's out there in the field shoveling shit and uh, you know he's sort of a gentry farmer but um, but hiking up into the mountains and when I hike with him you know he's picking up poisonous frogs and showing them to me and uh, he's thinner than me somehow and has more hair and he's 80 um, so but you know he was a freedom rider in the 60s and he went to to jail in Mississippi for that and uh, so he's this very impressive uh, guy all around uh, and uh, so I, I didn't I haven't gone to jail for the, for, for any cause and uh, I'm never ever going to you know, have a farm at the edge of a cloud forest or shovel shit or any of that. So, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it is this sort of shadow, uh, uh that I've, uh, that's cast over me that I do. That tends to come uh, out. Uh, your- yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have tried to exploit it for comedy a, num- <laughs> a number of times. Um, so yeah. Okay. So you sold it where? Uh, so we pitched around town. This was, it was a 20th century Fox pilot. We pitched around town and we sold it to, I think, probably got offers from a few places, but CBS, uh, which, because I think multicam, I mean, it is yeah, a multi-cam. It's, it's a multicam. Yeah, yeah. yeah and actually. so that probably influenced the decision <laughs> right. to go to CBS because that's, yeah. they were still making them and having success with them. Exactly. Yeah. And they it went pretty far. I mean, I don't, you know, and I'm usually very, skeptical about any signals coming in that a pilot's going to get shot. But in that case, uh, it got to the point where the raft of executives at CVS, when they, they called me, to, when they, the final notes called, they were giving me spelling corrections uh, on, or punctuation suggestions. And I was like, this is a great sign. If all, they've, if all they're giving me is punctuation, if they didn't care, they wouldn't bother, but right. they want they want it to be read by somebody important. So, uh, in the end, they told me Moonves said no. Uh, so, and it was uh, there was no more explanation than that. No, they, they all sounded a little shaken by it, like they they were really expecting it to go. Or that's just what they well, do when they decide not to yeah, make a show. I mean, it does. You know, from from my experiences with. With less moon vest. Um, the, your main character, um, there's there's elements that are, that I feel like are triggering for for less. You know, his girlfriend is cheating on him. Ah, uh, yeah, gets, yeah. You know, she gets pregnant from someone else. Right, right. There are shades where into less moon vest, he's a loser. Right, um, right, right. I think to us as an audience, seeing it, like he's funny and charming, and no, he's he's not a loser. But because he, you know, less would always have such a um you know radar for for any ma- you know, main yeah, characters yeah. feeling like losers that would often you know shut down pilots so i'm not saying that's the reason um it just feels like i wouldn't be surprised if you ran into that no that makes total sense and if less happens to be listening i would have worked with you uh, on these elements i just wanted to get a show on the air but it, it is i have had that habit in the past uh, where executives have steered me with like uh, you know, before I got s- smarter about it, you know, I would really try to stack the deck against the main character and make him a, a total loser. Because, you know, w- what's funny about being a winner? Nothing. Right. But, uh, 
you, you do have to balance things. Yeah, that, I mean, look, he, he is good at his job, which is, you know, uh, it's true like that. And, you know, he, he is great at the job. So yeah. you were balancing it that way. Um, yeah, I knew that. I know that you can't have a character be bad at their job uh, that much. But yeah, it's true. You're right. It's he, he probably got was getting a little bit too uh, uh, castrated uh, for for Moonbez's taste. Yeah. Um, but it, but the development process with the people below less sounds like it went it went well. Was yeah. The, the, you know, was there anything along the way that was like the one big note you were getting that changed from you know outline to to the script? Um, no, no, it was always pretty clear. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I don't remember ever getting off the phone. Uh, with them and being upset. I mean, they were always very, very specific uh, in their notes uh, and seemed to really know. That's kind of um, their way over there. Yeah. The notes tend to be little logic things yes. and uh, grammar things. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, no, it was it was really up to Phil and Chris and Seth, uh, the, their, their uh, EP over there at, the, at that time, um, uh, to, to, to guide me in content and all that. Um, but uh, yeah, no, there was nothing. Uh, yeah, there was nothing really. It, it, it all came together pretty. So it was a good easily. process up until the up until the phone it, call. It, up until it became eligible for your show. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and hearing it read out loud for the first, you know, hearing it for the first time, what were your? What did you think? Uh, well, I, I was sort of mostly marveling at the cast because I mean, I, I, it was, a. I think it's as cold as a cold reading could get. None of them had uh, tried reading it with each other or they probably hadn't read it before that day, or at least based on seeing them outline. But, um, uh, so I was just so impressed with how funny they were able to make it. But also I was reminded that, um, the script really could have used a solid pass at, uh, of, stripping out verbiage i mean this was a bunch of years ago and i could hear myself trying to sound smart and show off in the script a little bit um which is i mean that's true about scripts i wrote last week too i'm all uh uh it is a that's my achilles heel or whatever is that they are the most word laden things (laughs) and somebody has to beat them out of me you know um and so i could hear how (laughs) <laughs> how dense some of that dialogue was and but at the same time uh, marveling at how well they navigated it uh, yeah i mean i would say you know you're being hard on yourself a bit because what i enjoyed re- you know reading it and then and then hearing it read was you know that you yes there are long scenes these yeah. sort of two-person scenes that you sit in for for quite a while but yeah. to me they're really enjoyable you're seeing two you know well fleshed out characters getting to know each other yeah. and I, you know, I was enjoying that. A, yeah. a lot of pilots, especially single camera pilots are frenetic and, right. you know, you, you don't have time to really just sit and hear, you know, get used to the way characters speak and, right. and, and interact with each other because you're just, you know, there's such this frantic race to get to the next set piece, big scene. And so this, right. which has a little bit more of a, 
you know, a, a, a play like, right. um, you know, because it is a multicam, which is closer to play, but you really, you know, there's that, that scene when they're uh, having martinis and, and getting to know each other, you know, I think it's a couple scenes. Yeah. Um, and it's a while, but it, to me, it, it, it was fun. You know, when you have, you know, you have Hannah Simone and Nat Fax and you, you know, whoever it would have been had it been made, you have two great actors, it's kind of fun to, to, to see them have time to talk just like in long shot. There are plenty of scenes where right. we just enjoy Seth Rogen and Charlie Theron get you know talking to each other right. for for a while, um, and it's uh, I think the development process often um, beats that out of a script even before it gets to the you know the, the final right. draft. Right. I mean, th- yeah. Thank. First of all, thank you for noticing all that, and those are all those things that you are saying uh, complimentarily are the things that I was trying to do. Um, and it's the kinds of television and movies that I prefer to watch, where scenes breathe and uh, you get a feel for actual characters. Um, and yeah, it is hard to do that in pilots. Uh, this the they're very short and people are trying to cram in uh, a lot of characters and scene, you know, scenes and being afraid of being static and all that. May, I think it may be one of the reasons I wanted to do um, a multicam, uh, even in this, you know, even though they weren't sexy uh, back in 2014 and probably still aren't now. Uh, but um, it's, it's the kind of TV that I grew up with where... Right. Uh, you got, you got to hang out a little bit um, in each scene. Yeah, uh, and you didn't. Uh, it was also, you, it's not a huge cast. You know, you, you right. weren't introducing, you know, trying to introduce too many people uh, yeah. at once. And so the people that the characters you do have really come across, right. you know, strongly, and you have time to to get to know them. Right. Um, were you thinking? Were you? Did you go back and look at Mary Tyler Moore, or did you look at the, you know any of the the shows, the newsroom, or any of the shows that are set in this in this world, or are those yeah. things part of your brain anyway? Uh, well, they are a little bit, but no. Basically, every time I start a new pilot, I go back and I uh, look at all the pilots: the Friends pilot, the Office pilot, Mary Tyler Moore. Um, um, it happens every couple of years. I go back. Uh, that's interesting. Um, I've never. I mean, I do that. Some, I do that too. I don't hear a lot of writers say it's just to sort of get in your mind. Okay, this is this is how it's done. Remember these things. Yeah, I mean, basically, it's because you know uh, the these are the 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 masters, uh, and I just try to keep somewhat scholarly uh, and and not assume. You know, at the same time, not assume that I'm gonna do it better than them, and but I mean, also sometimes I guess to to avoid doing things that might feel not fresh. But um, I mean, I just recently went back and watched the Mash pilot. Um, it's just because I'm doing a show at a workplace that's uh, it's more like that show. Um, but that pilot was weird to me. I mean, I love that show, but that pilot uh, doesn't hold up it's somehow it's, yeah uh, it's, i remember thinking that too because i went back and, and saw it too and it is it is it's, it's a little bit too but it's so close to the movie in a way but it hasn't become its own thing as the right. tv show yet right um and i don't think it quite hit the mix 
of tones right. the way they later figured out how to how to do it. Right. Uh, although it certainly had plenty of uh, um, date rapey borderline. I mean, <laughs> it was sort of a lot of racial and uh, yeah. sexual. The the, the way Houlihan is treated is, is, yeah. is just not okay. Spear Tucker stuff in that, and it's yes. just like there are there's stuff in the pilot that is hard to to watch. At, in this right. Day and age. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not mad. I understand it was the 70s, but it was like, holy crap, I, I haven't seen the pilot since I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, why I forget because I, you think like you're going to go back to that and it's going to feel like the Mary Tyler Moore pilot, right. which hasn't aged a day. Right. Which is just incredible. Right. Um, and that one is is not up there with the class. It's up there with the classic shows for sure, but not the classic pilots, which is yeah. also a good lesson in and of itself. You know, pilots yeah. rarely the best episode of a show. No, pilots um, are brutal because they're not. It's not even a story. It's a sales document. You know, it's uh, at least for me. Um, it's not. I, I find literally writing just about literally writing an entire movie easier than developing a show and writing the pilot uh, because it's just not exactly telling a three-act classic story with a resolution and all that. It's it's setting up a thing to tell a hundred of the same but different stories and it, it fights writing. Um, and so as one thing I always do too much of when I'm pitching pilots or thinking about it is all of the... I st- always start out pitching a sort of premise pilot well, you know, this happens and this happens, which is never what they want, uh, at least in, in you know, half hour. Um, maybe it's a little bit different now and uh, as the form changes and streaming stuff. But for a network show, um, you just really have to start in, in the world that it's in, or at least the, the more successful ones do, uh, and not spend the first act setting it up. Um, but it's hard because it's just not, it's not natural storytelling to me. Right. Yeah, it, it's that tension of they, they want it to be the pilot to just be like, it could be episode 10 or it could be 10. And, right. and that is so difficult to do. Yeah. Um, so do you find that there are things you learn when you when you pitch? So you're writing some pilots now. Mm-hmm. Um, and with those, uh, when you when you pitch those, when you when you go forward, do you feel like you're having to relearn the same lessons every time or, or have, are there things you've learned about, okay, well, I know now when I pitch something, um, I need to do these things. Well, I, re- I definitely, I do relearn the same lessons over and over and over again, uh, writing, uh, even though I wrote all the lessons down and I have them in a file, but it's still somehow I forget to check the file and then I go down a blind alley for three weeks. Uh, but each time I do a pilot, it's in a slightly different stage of my career. So, of course, with the pilot that I'm doing now that's for a network, I didn't pitch it. I made a deal with the network and then worked backwards uh, to get a, the studio and then worked backwards to get an idea, which, uh, though I love all the people I'm working with, that was not a good idea. Yeah. That, that I was, you know, busy and a new father and all that. And so I thought, all right, I'll lock in the deal and... The- uh, so it has been a very bizarre backwards project, you know, process, but um, it works best. Yeah. When you go out, uh, when you de- take a long time to develop the idea and really have those characters in mind. Um, and I've already forgotten your question, but I think, yeah, I mean, I, um, yeah, I mean, I, uh, the lessons 
I guess was the, was the question, do I relearn lessons? Yeah, just, you know, what have you, I guess I'm basically asking you to share some wisdom with yeah. people about how to do this. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, I should like dispense. Well, to me, the things that work best for me is when I have a very clear uh, central comedic relationship, like like I think was true with, with this pilot uh, for Dead Pilots. Uh, those two characters were clear and they were clear why they were funny together. Um, uh, that uh, is for the my more successful things. I mean, like if you call the interview successful or whether you say it lost Sony a billion dollars, uh, <laughs> there's both ways to look at it. But I, I had fun writing it. I wrote it fast because I knew the two main characters were who they were and who they were to each other. And I, I think that was true with my movie uh, with Longshot too. That was I really uh, had a grasp on the central relationship because I I don't tend to actually manage like I probably couldn't have made friends because of six well crafted individual people. That's just too many for me <laughs> in, in one show. Uh, I would have had to make three friendses and split it up into three shows. That would have been very very rich. Um, but, but yeah, so so it's the dynamic. You for know, me, it's, it's, it's a, a central it's a central dynamic. dynamic. Yeah. And I do feel like that is. I think people spend time, you know, talking about okay, this character is, is and describing this character. Where really, what you, you know, what are these two characters like in a room together? What is their dynamic right. with each other? And even you know, when I've run shows and you know with the staff, I'm often just like, you know, well, but, but we need to be hitting a dynamic between these characters. They have to have opposing attitudes. And, yep. and um yeah, I mean, and it's true. You know, the same way you might look at Friends, I look at a show like Orange is the New Black or or Glow or those Genji Cohen shows. I'm like, I don't know how, you know, there's so many characters. It's amazing. So many dynamics playing, and I don't know how the, you know, six, okay, know how to do that. But, you know, 20 or whatever they're doing in Orange is the New Black seems unbelievable, you know, to, to be able to, to keep that many balls in the air and to right. have that many different character dynamics, comic dynamics between characters. But it's a, it's a good, you know... That is some wisdom. That that, that yeah. is something. You know, there's so many things you you could be thinking about when you're at the, at the heart of a pilot. You're pitching, you know, theme or whatever these things. But it's just like if you don't have a comic dynamic between characters that's clear to you, then once you start writing it, you're going to run into yeah, you're run into problems. Yeah, you're going to run into not comedy. Yeah, um, yeah, but yeah, it is amazing what they do. Like Genji Cohen, like just to. Yeah, come up with that many different characters. Keep track and, of them. Make sure keep, someone hasn't like, oh, I, that person hasn't spoken in six episodes. I just forgot about you. Know, I don't know how. Yeah, that, that's because I'm friends. Believe me, there are plenty of times where like, oh shoot, this character didn't say anything. They're in the scene. We forgot they haven't said anything before because it's just you know it becomes obvious when you're at a run through and you're seeing human beings there. But when you're writing it, it's easy to forget. Oh, forgot to give that character a line yeah. you know when you're when you've got two characters you're probably not going to forget that but um once you start getting more it, it definitely gets harder right um, no i mean i it's i'm usually doing some variations on the same thing and usually the two characters that i'm coming up with are two sort of versions of me arguing with myself there's the optimistic person uh arguing with the cynical person or you know maybe the narcissistic person arguing with the person who's trying to or at least claiming to care about other people but uh yeah i usually take a couple of slices of myself that i like uh and a couple that i don't and uh, uh have them 
duke it out and pretend that they're two different people and right. you know make one of them a woman and one of them a man and uh yes i'm doing the same thing over it, and over and over and my daddy issues yeah. it's the dan sterling formula so and somebody else could go write a pilot now you've got all the tools and yeah. Yeah, go write one and call it and just choose your own me. sterling adventure right well your wife is going to have a baby at any moment and so i probably kept you uh long enough i did but, notice uh, that my phone rang but uh, yeah that could have been you know you can meet her at the hospital this is more important um, it was a pleasure, Dan. Thank you, sir. Thank yes, you for- it was great. We're shaking hands. Uh, uh, yes. You can't see it, but uh, thank you so much. And that is it for our show this month. This show is produced by myself and Ben Blacker and our associate producer, Noah Findling. Thanks to Enid and Dustin, everyone at the Writers Guild Foundation. Uh, what a great space. Thank you, guys. Please, everybody, please subscribe to this podcast uh, wherever you listen. You can now find us on Stitcher and Spotify by the way. Uh, We really don't want you to miss an episode, so subscribe while you're there. Leave us a rating. Uh, Also, you should really follow us on on the social media, Twitter at Dead Pilots Pod, and on Instagram and Facebook at Dead Pilot Society. Uh, That way you will find out about all of our live shows. Next one's looking like January. Until next time, I'm Andrew Reich. Thank you for listening.